I don't want to go back to prison. I'm an old lady. And that's Dorothea Puente, the death house landlady. Don't want to go back to prison. Hmm. All right. This is Jen. This is Becky. And this is Too Close to Home. Welcome back, kids. Welcome. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about Dorothea Puente, which was suggested by one of our listeners on Instagram, Clipsy, C-L-I-P-S-E-E. Thank you for the suggestion. Thank you. If you guys have any more, of course, drop in our DMs like, like Clipsy did. But anyways, I digress. Let's start out with the sauces, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, a police interview from November 1988, and all that's interesting.com. Good sauces. Yes. So who she was before she was Dorothea Puente. She was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California, to Trudy May and Jesse James Gray. She was the sixth of seven children. You know how they all were back in the day, like mm -hmm. damn rabbits. Nobody knew about birth control or nothing. I think they just wanted kids to help tend to the everything. Either that or they wanted to like have more kids in the kid lotto because, you know, diseases and all That's the true. childhood illnesses and, and shit back in the day. It's true. They all had a super tragic childhood depending on each other. And at times these kids would be so hungry they'd be eating out of the garbage. Hmm. Her parents were both alcoholics and her father repeatedly uh, threatened to commit suicide in front of her. So memories. Nice. Hashtag daddy issues. Uh, he was a cotton picker, which I don't know why. I thought that was so funny. I was like, very odd. California, cotton. Oh, yeah. Her father died from the old Burke tuberculosis in 1937. And then her mom lost custody of the, uh, her and her siblings in 1938 and then decided, you know what? Let's die in a motorcycle accident by the end of the year. So real depressing shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, her siblings and her were separated, and she was placed in an orphanage. And then she states around this time that she was abused by a caregiver, but I don't have the specifics on that, nor do I really want to know, because that's just awful. She moved to Fresno, California with relatives, but by the age of 16, she had moved to Olympia, Washington. So she's been all up and down that West Coast. She lived in a motel and worked at an ice cream parlor. And part-time, as one would, she made, she worked in sex she was a sex worker. That did not come out smoothly. I kept going like, <laughs> she worked in sex. <laughs> you know, and uh, she brought a, fr a friend along with her. So they were like palling it up, making, okay. making money on the side, as we do. Yeah. I mean, sure. that's that's what we do every girl's night. You guys mm -hmm. think we're at the Rupor? No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Mm, I love Rupor. <laughs> we're walking downtown, okay, throwing, throwing out ankles and shit. She used many aliases at this time. I mean, I would if I yeah. was a sex worker, because then why not? Call me Jean-Viev. <laughs> she called herself Sherry. Um, she would also lie about her childhood and other things. She claimed she was one of 17 children born in Mexico. She was a habitual liar, so she would just make up these stories on the fucking fly. She claimed that she survived the Bataan Death March in the Philippines and World War II and the bombing Hirosh Hiroshima in Japan. She's I know. a world traveler. Right? She said that the ambassador Sweden was her brother and also claimed to be an actress and a close friend of Rita Way Hayworth. But you out here slanging it on the streets. Okay, just, okay, this okay. is just for side cash. Okay. That's it. You know, this yeah, is yeah. respectable. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> At 18 years old, she met 22-year-old Fred McFall. 
He was fresh out of the Pacific Theater, which I always love when people say that. I mean, I know that's depressing because, you know, war and shit. But I was like, makes you think of all those romantic stories around that time. He came back fresh from the Pacific Theater. (laughs) She claimed she was 30 when she met him. And uh, they married in Reno in 1946. He discovered eventually that she was not 30 and that she was 18, but stayed because they had two children. And why would you lie and say you're older? I know. I thought you lied and said younger. Well, I mean, unless you're there for compliments, like I would not hesitate to say instead of being 34, I'm 44. And then people will be like, damn, girl, you look great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can't look at these skin and be like. Uh, oh, it's a normal 34-year-old skin. I'd be like, I'm 62. They're like, bitch, what is your <laughs> regimen? I bathe in the blood of virgins. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't be telling off my beauty secrets, Oh, okay? oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> oil of oil of Oil of Oil of I use my cold cream from Pond. <laughs> she had her kids in 1946 and 1948, and they bought a home in Gardnerville, Nevada. He was frustrated with Dorothea's expensive taste and lack of mothering and wifely skills. I mean, I get that. You know, you marry a woman hoping she's going to be a great wife. Fails at that. Okay, that's cool. She has kids. Also sucks at that. Okay, all right. Now you're spending all my money? (laughs) (laughs) She left shortly after the birth of her second child to Los Angeles where she became pregnant again. She just let the kids too bounce out? Yep. All at your girl? Deuces. Cool. Uh, she was pregnant with a stranger's baby that she didn't know. Oh, just some guy just from some her guy. side job. She suffered a miscarriage, but at that point, her marriage with her husband has, you know, already re- irretrievably broken, as they say in court documents. <laughs> <laughs> she went. She sent her older child to live with uh, their paternal grandparents, and then gave the second daughter she had up for adoption. Oh, so she's like, "Where's the dad?" He was just like, "Fuck it." But, you know, like, back in those days, it wasn't very often that the father would raise a child after a mother. He'd either get remarried or send those kids off to fucking relatives. Yeah. And that's what happened to, I believe, my great-grandfather. His mama died. And he he got sent to go live with an aunt in Georgia somewhere. Just like, fuck your kids, I guess. Different times. Different times. So she went back to California where she told people her husband had died of a heart attack a few days into their marriage. This is where she picked up the habit of forging checks. Okay. She bounced a check in San Bernardino and was caught, pled guilty, sentenced to a year in jail. She was paroled after four months and given probation for three years. Damn, a year in jail for a check? Yeah. Yow. It must have been a fucking big one. But child molesters can get suspended sentence. For real. Like, you know what? Time served. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, So she was supposed to have probation for three years, but she was like, Fuck it, I'm out. On to San Francisco, baby. (laughs) She had a few tough years and got pregnant again and gave that daughter up for adoption as well. And then, which, you know, like, it's sad. You're like, oh, she didn't keep her kids. But you know what? It's probably a fucking good thing. But could you imagine seeking out your biological parents and then finding out that was your mom? Oh, I would. If it was me, though, I would probably be soaking it up. Also in therapy, as one probably should be anyways. I'm going to get the best interview. (laughs) I'm going to be on uh, True Crime TV. (laughs) My mama's name was Dorothea. (laughs) That bitch killed people. (laughs) 
1952, she got married again to a Swedish merchant seaman named Axel Bryn Johansson. It was a turbulent marriage from the get-go, and Axel didn't like that she was always out drinking and gambling. She also came up with... Sounds like she was living her best life. Right? This girl was wiling. Out drinking and gambling? All the time. I'm here for it. Wearing expensive clothes. Here for it. Fuck them kids. (laughs) Well, not here for that part. I do love my children. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) She came up with another new alias, Taya Singuala Nayarda, claiming she was a Muslim of Egyptian and Israeli descent. Right? (laughs) Like, um, telling people, one, uh, you were born in Mexico, then you were surviving Hiroshima in Japan, now you over here. of Egyptian and Israeli descent. Also, that name is super hard to pronounce. What was her actual ethnicity? I think she was just white. She okay, was, so she was going to try to Caucus, pull off the Egyptian. The Caucasus. Yeah, I okay. think she was just, okay. she looked. Be like you saying that. Yeah. <laughs> she looked like she was Hispanic some, a little bit. You know, she had really dark skin and dark hair. Okay. But you know, like my dad, he's got really dark skin, like olive complexion. And he has really dark hairs, but we're not Italian. We're not Hispanic. So <laughs> she just was lucky, I guess. <laughs> Better than me. <laughs> Fucking pale ass bitch. <laughs> Whenever Axel left home for his frequent trips at sea, she would take full advantage of his absence and invite men over to their marital home. He would sometimes come home from sea and find a strange man living in his home. And you know what mm-hmm. would happen? Violent altercations. Shocking. I bet you didn't expect that. I didn't. <laughs> I thought he was going to make him pancakes. <laughs> right? <laughs> Bruh. You been, paying the, you been paying the rent while I was gone? <laughs> nope. So they stayed together for years off and on. In 1960, she was arrested in a brothel in Sacramento for, from an undercover police officer. She claimed she was just there to visit a friend, but there were rumors that she ran the operation under the guise of a bookkeeping firm. She, regardless, she was found guilty, sentenced to 90 days in Sacramento County Jail, and then shortly after her release, she was arrested again. But this time it was for vacancy, and she spent another 90 days in jail. This bitch fucking loves this shit. She's also, (laughs) like, the worst criminal. She keeps getting fucking caught. Yeah. In 1961, Axel had her committed to the DeWitt State Hospital for a psych evaluation. Stated she was constantly binge drinking, lying, and she had attempted suicide multiple times. Doctors said, stated that she was a pathological liar. <laughs> what? <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> and had an unstable personality. Hmm. I could not tell. After her release, she found work as a nurse's aide and cared for elderly and disabled people. Oh, that already sounds like a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It gets worse. In 1966, Dorothea and Axel finally divorced, and she would continue to use the name Johansson, Johansson, however you want to pronounce it, named for some time following their separation and assumed the identity of Sharon Johansson. She began managing boarding houses and presented herself as a devout Christian caregiver for the impoverished and abused women. In 1968, she opened her own boarding house called The Samaritans. She established her reputation as a caregiver, providing young women with a sanctuary from poverty and abuse without charge. This, however, backfired and landed her $10,000 in debt. (laughs) Like, this bitch goes and does one fucking thing, which I don't know if she was, like, not trying to, like, con people while doing this. Oh, she was 100%. But, like, 
you know, okay, no charge. And like, I know you went through a tough time. And then, boom, $10,000 debt. Well, how are you going to provide for these people that don't pay you anything? Like, where are you getting the money from? I guess conning from the other people. You know what? I see you broke. You broke. It's okay. Here's $20. Tony, you got $20? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in 1968, she married the man who would give her her, give her, her infamous name, Roberto Jose Puente. He was 19 years her senior, and they married in Mexico City. The age difference caused issues right away. After 16 months, they've separated, and when she attempted to have him served, he fled to Mexico. And I was like, she got conned by a con, son. <laughs> like, finally, somebody got one over. She's the one who usually dines and dashes. <laughs> Not this time, bitch. Why didn't he want a divorce? I think they were just like... They just did not get along and would fight. No, no, no. Why didn't he want to divorce? Oh, why why didn't, didn't he run when she tried to serve him? That's I'm confused. I'm not sure. They didn't even say that. I mean, I guess people were like, I mean, it's self-explanatory. Who would want to be married to this bitch? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, it was finalized in 1973, but they kept seeing each other till she filed for a restraining order, causing them to split for good in 1975. She would go on and keep the name Puente for more than 20 years. Mm. So let's talk about 2100 F Street, Sacramento, California. Following her divorce, she took over managing a three-story, 16-bedroom care home. She established herself as a genuine resource to the community to aid alcoholics. Established herself as a genuine resource to the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To aid alcoholics, homeless people, and mentally ill people. By holding Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and assisting individuals to sign up to receive Social Security benefits. Oh, yeah, I bet she did. (laughs) Some tenants would call her saintly, with her being kind and sweet and often bringing them home-cooked meals. Other tenants would say that she was stingy with food, would open their mail, and even steal their money. Which do you think's true? (laughs) (laughs) I think she was kindly and godly. (laughs) I don't think she was opening their food to steal it. She was opening it to help them. Look at you. Forever the optimist. Of course. (laughs) Glass half full. Right? She married one of her tenants in 1976. This is her fourth husband now. Pedro and Hell Angel Montalvo. He was irritated with her spending habits. Uh, that's You're like, broken record. (laughs) She would wear brand new pantyhose every day and as well. What? Yeah, I know. The audacity of that bitch. The expense. <laughs> and as well as high end clothing, weird flex to appear wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> Some say the marriage only lasted a week. Once he was a gone, week? I know. Well, he was like, you know what, bitch? The you ink ain't even dried on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what, bitch? I'm out. <laughs> Once he was gone, she started spending more and more time in bars, trying to use her charm to figure out which of the guys were good targets to steal from. In 1978, Puente at this point, was charged and convicted illegally cashing 34 state and federal checks that belonged to her tenants. Damn. Psychiatrist diagnosed her with schizophrenia at this time, and she was ordered to seek counseling, had five years of probation, and pay $4,000 in restitution. I bet they seen every penny that she owed them to, didn't they? She (laughs) paid everybody back. (laughs) Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) Checks in the bill. So she loved F Street for some reason because she was at 2100. Well, now she's going to 1426 F Street, and this is downtown Sacramento. 
1981, she rented an upstairs apartment from Ricardo Ordorinco. Ordorico. Ordorico. I think, I'm pretty sure. Please, I'm so sorry if I messed that up. Who wasn't aware of her criminal history. It's 1981. Background checks weren't like. Yeah, not You can go on there now and like use like Spokio and shit like that and find people and. Yeah. In 1982, her friend, 53-year-old Ruth Monroe, began living with Puente in her upstairs apartment. Ruth's husband was terminally ill, and they both worked together at a, like, a little diner that they kind of co-owned. So they felt like it made sense to move in together. She had her husband in, like, a um, care center because he was terminally ill. She wrote to her husband about how successful their business was and their bright future and if you ever talk about a bright future you know that person's about to die Die. (laughs) (laughs) she brought all her possessions six thousand dollars in cash to the new apartment with dorothea two weeks later ruth ran into a friend and stated i feel like i'm going to die and wouldn't explain further first of all becky if you walk up to me and say i feel like i'm going to die i'd be like why what's going on what's the deets What's the T? Because it might be like, I'm going to die like this bitch right here. Or, oh, right. you know, like if you're coming in here like ominous as hell going like, I think I'm going to die like some uh, final destination bullshit. Mm. We got to talk. I'm not going to let you just walk away without explaining yourself. Right. <laughs> I am too nosy. We're going to have to record a bunch of episodes since you're not going to be here. <laughs> yeah, like we need to get ahead of the curve. <laughs> I'd be like at your casket, like, bam. We forgot this one episode. <laughs> you seen those TikToks where like it's a, when your best friend dies and you're at their yes. funeral? That's us. Yes, 100%. <laughs> so 16 days after moving in, she was found deceased from an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen, a.k.a. Tylenol. Dorothea said that she was depressed due, due to her husband's terminal illness and the coroner poli- and police had no reason to su- suspect she was also, she was murdered. And like, who would look at your roommate and be like, you know what? You have a crazy cr- degree, <laughs> crazy history and criminal activity. You wouldn't. I know you wouldn't. But you know what? They probably didn't know all that about no. her. But this time, like she was a, like, she had not really gotten that like old lady persona quite yet so i'm like i would instantly i mean i'm i would like to say instantly suspicious about that but also i will go anywhere that somebody tells me to as long as it's free so 100 (laughs) (laughs) i feel like you'd be the one that would be like oh her husband was dying she probably did and i'd be like jennifer put on your detective hat here (laughs) we all know who's the good cop and who's the bad cop (laughs) we do (laughs) which is really more like who's the dumb cop who's the smart cop no (laughs) gullible is more accurate (laughs) exactly (laughs) so a month later the police returned to the apartment with a arrest warrant she had been accused by several men of being drugged and, and then robbed, obviously. Malcolm McKenzie, a 74-year-old pensioner, reported meeting her in a bar when he brought her home. He became woozy and realized she must have drugged him. He stated he was unable to move as she watched him watched her ransack his home and even pull a ring off his finger. 
ruthless. <laughs> and in my head, when I was reading that, I was like, I can imagine being like, uh, what do they call it when you're like paralyzed? Yeah, sleep paralysis or mm-hmm. whatever. And then, like, I see an uh, old lady walking around my house, like, through my drawers and shit. Like, lady, first of all, I don't even keep money in my sock drawer. <laughs> I don't even keep it in my bank account. I have none. <laughs> I ain't got none in my wallet, okay? For real. So, first of all. <laughs> Choke's on you. <laughs> and if that bitch came and saw a ring off my finger. And you're just sitting there watching. Oh, first oh, off, sucks. these fat fingers, you're going to have some trouble. You're going to have some trouble getting these diamonds off of them. <laughs> so, August of 1982, she was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison, and the judge never considered her criminal history and gave her a light sentence. I'm still at a loss that she's done all this shit and got light sentences, but she forged a check and got a year. Right? <laughs> still, <laughs> like, hung you know up what? on that. Vagrancy, 90 days. You yeah. forged a check at Albertsons? The <laughs> audacity. <laughs> the, she adapted to easily to prison life and was quite popular and uh, loved to tell stories. So she would obviously tell these super embellished stories and be like the center of attention. Her talkative nature did bite her in the ass when a fight broke out and she snitched on who started it. And as we know, snitches get stitches. That's true. She was then put in solitary for her safety where she received an unsolicited letter from Everson Gilmuth. Also, while she was in prison, she was reconfirmed schizophrenic by prison doctors and they said that she was unable to feel remorse and should be watched closely. And I feel like if I this feel- stuff had happened in the last 10 years, it probably would have been more likely to have been caught. But it, the 80s was a wild time, son. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I feel like schizophrenia was an inaccurate diagnosis. I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist by any means, but I feel like she was awful manipulative and high functioning in regards to her schemes and mm-hmm. stuff to be schizophrenic. That's just me. Though. I think with like her suicide attempts, it might've been like some manic depression. Yeah. Maybe and some... then the spending of the money, the gambling, the going out in bars and all these yeah, high risk more activities. Bipolar. Yeah. And she's a nurse guys. So it's not even like armchair nursing. She mm-hmm. is a nurse y'all. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, Still armchair, too. (laughs) (laughs) Everson was a 77-year-old retiree from Oregon. For some reason, I keep coming up with these stories with Oregon, like, even though your mom's here now, but, like, it's funny. (laughs) She finally listened. She got out of Oregon, okay? Right. She heard our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) He had a hobby of writing letters to women in prison. Usually, it's the other way around, so color me interested. (laughs) He bragged about his generous pen, pension and his airstream which is a panty dropper baby am i right actually it is because those things are fucking nice they are just saying and they're stupid expensive they Even are the brand ass new ones i'm like you do got a good pension <laughs> also why are you gonna write women in prison and tell them that you got a generous i'd be like bitch my pockets might be empty but my heart is full <laughs> I would not be telling <laughs> nobody. Okay, then again, I know it's me. I would be like, you know what? Let me tell you how much my baby. It's fucking shocking. First of all, I would prefer to find someone who's not locked up. But yes. sometimes times are times are hard. I guess when you're 77 and you're a retiree, you got to look for love in the most unlikely places. You do. You do. <laughs> Some fish are in ponds they can't escape. And that's where you dip your pole. <laughs> 
She ain't running out of the bars, is she? No, because she's <laughs> locked down. <laughs> so they began a rela- uh, relationship at a distance. She served only three of the five years, and Everson picked her up in his bright new red Ford pickup truck, and they moved back into the apartment she rented from Ricardo Ordorico, where Everson also moved in with her. He wrote his sister about becoming engaged and how happy he was. And as we know, when you tell people how fucking happy you are and optimistic, you end up what? Dead. Dead. You have to be pessimistic at all times. True. Everything's half empty. <laughs> <laughs> Ricardo offered to rent the whole home for $600 a month so she could run her own boarding house. He wasn't aware about her parole conditions about staying away from the elderly, (laughs) not working or volunteering with the elderly in any capacity, as well as handling any government checks for anyone. All of that shit was prohibited in her (laughs) release papers. (laughs) Everson added Orthea to his checking account and paid the rent for her new boarding house. Why can't I find a man like that? (laughs) (laughs) JJ be asking me to help pay bills and shit. (laughs) Come on, man. Don't I look like a kept woman? Right? I need to be on the couch eating bonbons. I want to wear new pantyhose every day. Every day. Every day. That's a whole new flex. I didn't even know what was a wear. Okay? I, I didn't either. I will say that my great-grandfather that I told you about, that his uh, father abandoned him pretty much, he ended up being like a millionaire. And my great-grandmother, which she was alive when I was around when I was a kid. We called her Gigi. She would brag about... Uh, stockings back in the day, they had a line down the back. Oh, uh-huh. And of course, during the war, you couldn't get them because of mm-hmm. uh, ration cards and stuff like that. So women would draw a line on the back yes. of their legs. Well, he was like, uh-uh, no woman of mine's going to. And he paid the extra to get that woman her pantyhose. And okay. if that's not goals, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> you won't get new pantyhose every day, baby. JJ would go, Get the marker and help me draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> like, hold on, let me get a ruler. We're going to make this bitch straight. <laughs> oh, God damn it! <laughs> he would be like, we are not paying extra. <laughs> God help if you wanted fishnets. <laughs> <laughs> they used the entire second floor for their own apartment, and then the first floor was quickly rented out to new tenants, with Dorothea setting to work on home improvements for the boarding house. In November 1985... She hired a man named Ishmael Flores to install wood paneling, so 80s, in her apartment. <laughs> you remember that shit? Yes. That shit was back in those days. Now it's a pain in everyone's ass. I bet you that's what shiplap's going to be. What? Shiplap. You know how everybody's putting shiplap in their house? Like the I... white boards that are like... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's going to be the new uh, wood paneling. Wood paneling. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> She asked him, of course, to put that wood paneling in. And then as payment, she gave him a brand new red Ford truck since her boyfriend was in L.A. and wouldn't be needing it anymore. Aw. She she also asked him to build a box to store books and other items. And then she gave him very specific instructions on how to build it. She wanted it six foot long, three foot wide, and two foot deep. For books. Yeah. Yeah. It's what I store my books in. For books and shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He built it as requested, and she asked him to come back the next day to help her move it to a storage building. The next day, he goes to pick it up, and he realizes it's fucking super heavy. And yeah, because it's full of books. Full of books. 
That must be the Encyclopedia Britannica in that bitch. Yes, A through Z. At least two volume, two sets. At least two. And that shit was nailed shut. So Yeah, because like, she wanted to take care of her books. And as we all know, people love plausible deniability. Yeah. <laughs> like, of course that's his box. <laughs> she, he has it loaded up in the truck. And as they're driving down, they were on the Garden Highway in Sutter County. And she says, I want you to stop right here. She's going to throw the books out here. Yeah. We're going to dump this box of junk and books on the riverbank at an unofficial household junk dumping site. She insisted it was just uh, it was just books. It wasn't that big of a deal. Just yeah, fuck it. They're going to disintegrate. Yeah. Gives the fish a home. Yeah. So on and so I'm forth. I'm giving back to the environment, okay? Books yes. are biodegradable. Exactly. <laughs> no one sees Everson for months. And she writes family and friends stating he was very ill as she continues to cash his pension te- checks. Duh. <laughs> on January 1st, 1986, there's some fishermen on the river and they smell this something horrible. And so they kind of go and search. Which it's just the books decomposing. Is, <laughs> that's how it <laughs> happens. And they find this box. And the box smelled horrible. So, of course, they call the police. They came and they opened the box. And I'm going to tell you, that's the day I wouldn't want to be a police officer. Mm-mm. Those are the cases. Like, the, when you, if you had to stick Vaseline in your fucking nose. Wait, I'm confused. Why wouldn't you want to be a police officer? It's just books in there. Just books. <laughs> it's just books. <laughs> <laughs> so they end up opening the box and they found a badly decomposed and unidentifiable, unidentifiable, unidentifiable. That's the word. Body of an What? El- yeah. It wasn't books? It wasn't books. Oh, my God. It was an elderly Color man. Color me shocked. And he was only wearing his panties and a watch. Panties? His underwear. Okay. <laughs> I was like, shit just got weirder. <laughs> I love calling men's underwear panties. <laughs> I'm like, Jimmy, I put your panties on the bed. He goes, it's, these are briefs. Thank you. <laughs> Not to me. <laughs> Why don't you put your panties on and prance around this room for me? <laughs> Woo! I love it. Uh-huh. Alexa, calm down. Damn. That set off my Alexa and everything on my, my little tablet. <laughs> she got excited too. Shh, shh. I was know. that your auto record feature that comes on when you tell Jimmy to prance around <laughs> in his panties? Is that what it really was? We have a smart home and the you know it. The camera came on. <laughs> Pretty soon, disco ball's going to drop from the ceiling. <laughs> Let's get it on. I'm going to gently slide oh, out from behind it. this microphone and go home. <laughs> you didn't know you were coming to the show, did you? Change my phone number. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended up being, the books were listed as John Doe. And it would take three <laughs> years before they would be identified. She continued to maintain a boarding house, taking in 40 new tenants. Jesus. Puente continued to accept elderly boarders and was popular with local social workers because she accepted referrals of tough cases like drug addicts, mentally ill, alcoholic. Of course. And, of course, those abusive tenants that nobody wants to deal with. Of course. She would host AA meeting, meetings and help tenants sign up for Social Security benefits and manage their finances. Selfless. Is she still around? Because I haven't signed Justin up yet. Maybe she could help me. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Let me tell you how good she was with that. So during this period, parole agents actually visited Puente 15 times at least. And that though she had been ordered to keep away from elderly and refrain from handling government checks, no violations were ever noted. (laughs) 
did they really show up or did they like fuck it that bitch is doing pencil right. whipped it <laughs> yeah like fuck it <laughs> by this point she had changed her public image to that of a respectable older matron by putting on vintage clothing wearing large granny glasses and letting her hair turn gray becky <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of my scheme <laughs> hey i need help signing up for social security <laughs> i got you i got you got you got you got you <laughs> she also established herself as a respected member in sacramento's hispanic community funding charities scholarships and radio programs which i thought was funny i was like radio pro oh that's right we had that back in those days <laughs> like that was like some it wasn't like how now nowadays is re- who even listens to jockeys these days? I do occasionally because Emma likes to listen. She gets tired of listening to my podcast. And when I turn the radio on, she's like, oh, thank you. I'm like, excuse me? That was me and Jennifer we were listening to. Excuse me? That's our podcast. <laughs> so uh, she would host extravagant parties, of course, because she had the money, and invited local politicians and social workers to join, as well as people from local shelters. She would house at least 40 individuals at a time. Many of these people were from marginalized parts of society, unwanted and alone. She collected tenants' money, monthly mail before they saw it, and paid them stipends, pocketing the rest for expenses. Yeah. But do you not know how much? It's the 80s. They were also going through inflation at the time. <laughs> Sometimes these tenants would disappear and she would state that they were out of town or left on their own accord, which wasn't unheard of for people like that. This kept happening to Peggy Nickerson, a social worker with St. Paul Senior Center, and she became suspicious. In the absence of any evidence to support her suspicions, she decided, let's just stop sending people from this house just in case. Sending people to this house just in case. A 78-year-old tenant named Betty Palmer left for a doctor's appointment at this time never to be seen again in August 1986. Just a week after her disappearance, Dorothea used Betty's ID to cash a benefit check. And in February 1987, 78-year-old Leona Carpenter was crashing on Dorothea's couch after being released from the hospital until a room could open. She would disappear before that room ever became open. In July 1987, James Gallup was staying with Dorothea after a heart attack and brain tumor surgery, which, bruh, you had a heart attack and brain tumors in? Yeah. You survived that, but this bitch took you down? Like, that's the awfulest thing. Anyways, uh, a fellow tenant had heard a fight where Dorothea was demanding to take over his finances, and he was like, bitch, I got it. Like, I had brain surgery, but I ain't, <laughs> I ain't incapable. <laughs> he also would later state that she was overdrugging him, and he was tired all the time. Just before he disappeared. Dorothy Miller, a 64-year-old indigenous American and army veteran, last seen by her social worker in October 1987. Um, also in October 1987, 64-year-old Vera Faye Martin was renting a room for a short time before she too went missing. As well as 55-year-old Benjamin Fink. He was last seen in April 1988 going upstore- upstairs with Dorothea so she could, quote, make him feel better. <laughs> and so here, here's where you see something, you say something. <laughs> Alvaro Gonzalez Montoya, which he went by Alberto oh. Albert. I like that name. Me too. Isn't that the? My name is 
whatever Montoya, you killed my father. <laughs> Prepare to die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was 51 years old. He didn't say much. In fact, he preferred to talk to trees. Oh. He was unkempt in appearance and he wore shabby clothes and was labeled as a drunken bum, except he wasn't an alcoholic or on drugs. He could often be seen shuffling along the streets of Sacramento, California, mumbling to himself, mostly in Spanish, due to being from Costa Rica. Bert spent his nights sleeping in a large shed on Front Street, which was F Street, which had been located to the Volunteers of America to be used as a house and care for other homeless men who, unlike Bert, were mostly drunken drifters. Judy Moyes, a volunteer, was on good terms with Bert. Knowing he was suffering from mental issues and not dependency of alcohol and drugs, she wanted to help Bert find a safer and healthier place for him to stay. Which, I mean, like, commendable. You're volunteering at this place. And kudos for you doing that. But then you're going above and beyond and seeing that there's someone here that one could do better in a better environment. Right. You know, you're not in this issue. We're not taking care of you adequately. And it took Judy almost a year to track down Bert's official identification and social security number so that he could collect the benefit checks that he was entitled to. After contacting the U.S. at the embassy in San Jose, Costa Rica, she learned that Bert was born Alvaro Jose Rafael Gonzalez Montoya. Fucking love that name. (laughs) On September 8th, 1936, and he had entered the U.S. legally in 1962, accompanied by his mother and sister. With that, she set out for a search for him, for a place for him to stay, because now he had finances and identification. One of the counselors suggested a boarding house on F Street that was run by a kindly widow who was experienced in the care of homeless and adept at dealing with vagaries of vagaries. Is that a word? I don't think so. She was adept at dealing with people who were destitute and homeless. In February 1988, she met Dorothea at her legendary Victorian household. Household, she was met. Uh, she was without teeth when they opened. The, it was she, when they could knock on the door and everything. And she was like, "Oh my god, I'm so embarrassed. I oh, just okay, ordered okay, a okay. new set of teeth. I'm just still waiting for them to arrive." And honestly, I think that she did that on purpose. It bolstered her image as an older lady because she was only 59 years old at the time. Oh, wow. Which I'm not saying like you're not going to have dentures at 59 years old. It's just not as likely. And she was putting off that persona like she's in her 80s or something. Right, right. You know, it probably made her look weaker. More harmless. Yeah. Like this is a safe place, of course. (laughs) (laughs) To Judy, she seemed pleasant enough and appeared to run a clean and orderly house. After a tour of the dwelling, Puente offered them coffee, and they raised the subject of Bert. Puente was more than happy to accept him and told the woman that she was more than capable of ministering to his particular needs, needs, as she was also Hispanic, having originally come from Mexico. (laughs) And in two days, Bert moves in. And within weeks, his general condition and demeanor improved. His hygiene had improved with regular bathing and clean clothes. And he was finally starting to take his medications regularly like you're supposed to. And that improved his quality of life, making him much more lucid and able to hold a cohesive conversation, which is something that he couldn't do before. He was even calling her mama at this point. In March of 1988, she took Bert downtown to the Social Security admin building and stated that she was his cousin from Mexico. (laughs) First of all, bitch, he's from Costa Rica. (laughs) 
<laughs> and that he was mentally impaired and she was his caretaker. She filled out a form and became his payee, earning $637 a month. That's $1,500 in today's money. Mm. After this trip downtown, he had disappeared telling other tenants he was out of town visiting. And I actually had seen a bunch of TV shows about Dorothea Puente, and I just don't remember which one this one's this one's from. But, like, it had, like, the social worker that helped find out all this stuff, the one that was helping Bert. And she kept calling and was like, where's he at? Oh, he's just out. Oh, where's he at? Oh, well, he just went to Mexico, you know, visiting some of my family. And all this stuff was, like, odd anyways. In 1988, Dorothea hired a man no known as Chief, who was a homeless alcoholic. Soon after he moved in, she was telling people that she had adopted him. She soon would give him odd jobs, such as taking out the concrete slab in the bas basement, removing dirt, and replacing it. <laughs> Take down the garage in the backyard and installing a concrete pad there as well. <laughs> he disappeared in May 1988, and a rotting smell started wafting through the neighborhood. She claimed different things. It was fish emulsion in the garden. There was rats dying under her home. There was sewer backup. And she would pour lime and bleach all over her yard and tempted to get rid of the smell. And they were talking about the smell of the house. It was just reeking of bleach at the time. Judy Moyes was getting suspicious. That's the social worker for um, Bert. Was getting suspicious and tried to track him down. Dorothea paid another tenant named Donald to call Judy pretending to be Bert's brother-in-law, stating that he was out of town visiting, but mistakenly used his own name, <laughs> alerting Judy. <laughs> so she decides at this point, I'm going to fucking file a missing persons report. Like, this ain't right. November 7th, 1988, Detective John Cabrera and other detectives came for a wellness check for Bert. She invited them in to search. She told people that he just up and left and her tenants all backed up this story. As they were leaving, one of the tenants slipped a note to the detectives. She's making me lie for her. Mm. And the detective came back a few days later to search. They noticed that the corner of the yard had been recently disturbed. They asked if they could go dig in that spot, and she agreed and even provided a shovel for them. <laughs> As they dug down, they found um, shredded cloth and then what looked like beef jerky. Mm. They hit something, couldn't get past it, and so Cabrera went in the hole to free up the obstruction, thinking it's like a root or whatever, and as he pulled, it popped, reeling that it was a joint and that he was pulling on a bone, mm. and then as he kept digging, he found a foot still inside a shoe. Mm. Dorothea acted shocked, of course, and they what? called... What? <gasps> oh, this <laughs> She acted shocked and they called in the coroner and forensics to excavate. The following day, as they set to further search her yard, Dorothea, who was not under arrest, asked if she could walk down to the Clarion, which was a hotel right down the street, for a, club, a cup of coffee, which, ew, why would I go to a hotel for coffee? Theirs is always the worst coffee. It is. That's like going to Cracker Barrel and having coffee. <laughs> that shit is literally like uh, burnt water. <laughs> like jailhouse coffee it's terrible there ain't enough creamer and sugar to make that shit palatable <laughs> <laughs> i'll still chug it though if i'm tired same when she got to the hotel she caught a cab to a bar across town drank four greyhounds which i i looked up what's it's a cocktail um it's like a got vodka and stuff in it and you like grapefruit juice it sounds disgusting 
Then she caught another cab to Stockton. From there, she took a six-hour bus trip to L.A. and checked into room 31 of the Royal Viking Hotel in downtown L.A. under the name Dorothea Johansson. She had $3,000 of cash, and for a few days, she stayed holed up in her hotel room. After getting bored, because she can't be left alone, <laughs> she dolls herself up and caught a cab to a bar near the hotel. She was overdressed, made her stick out like a, a thumb, like a sore thumb, and she met Charles Wilgoose, a 59-year-old retired carpenter, and she told him her name was Donna, and that she came from Sacramento, and she was drinking a screwdriver, and that her husband had just died, so she came to L.A. to get a new start. A whole nother fucking story. <laughs> she stated the cab took off with her suitcase, and that all she had was clothes on her back and her broken pumps, which, of course, she sat down and she's like, look at this. Even my shoes broke. <laughs> Feeling bad, he took her pumps to a nearby cobbler to get them fixed. Like, hold on. Let me get these shoes. I'll be right back. First of all, how do you not know this man not, not, not have a, a shoe fetish? <laughs> 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 so he came back and she said that she wanted to repay him and then asked how much he got every month in Social Security. <laughs> That's I like a, how you lead in with that. I'm like, I want to repay you. How much first, do you make? How much do you make? <laughs> <laughs> that comes out every month. It's checked. Social Security. Okay, okay. I mean, you must make enough. He went and got your shoes fixed right after he met you. But it's like, all oh, that sweet gesture just made him an easy target. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, I just met you. I'll go fix my shoes. I got your number. <laughs> he decided... Because he was thinking with his dick that he was going to go ahead and brag to her about it, that he made $556 a month, which is $1,400 in today's money. And she was like, bro, I know you can, I can get you more. I'm an expert at this. I know how, what forms to use to get the maximum bennies. <laughs> Not a direct quote. <laughs> Although, could you imagine like a little lady? Sometimes I wish that we were like drunk history and had a reenactment going on where we're just... <laughs> And I imagine a little old lady, I can get you the maximum bennies. <laughs> they talked for hours, and she suggested they spend Thanksgiving together. And if they hit it off, she could move in with them. I'm just saying. If things go well, I'm your girl. I'm your girl. I'll move in with you, baby. But that's how I get you the max bennies. <laughs> <laughs> when he left, he promised to come back the next day to take her shopping. And he couldn't shake the feeling that he knew her face from somewhere. And that night, while watching the news... He sees old Donna's face <laughs> and that she was Dorothea Puente wanted in connection with murders. He wasn't a hundred percent sure. So instead of calling the police, he called the news station and talked with Gene Silver from CBS. He was able to confirm that it was Dorothea and contacted the police to get and gathered a news crew. Could you imagine that newscaster being like, hold up, you didn't call the, you called me inside the police. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> At this time, they had uncovered Seven bodies. Leona Carpenter was the first body. She was 78. Dorothy Miller was 64. Her arms were duct taped to her chest. Benjamin Fink, 55, was wearing nothing but his boxer shorts, AKK pennies. <laughs> Vera Faye Martin was 64. She was buried alive and had tried to escape the grave. She was wearing a watch and the clock was still ticking. Mm. Not on her, just on the watch. James Gallup, that was a horrible joke, sorry. <laughs> James Gallup, 62, he was the guy who had survived a heart attack and the brain surgery. Um, Betty Palmer, 78, she had buried her in the front yard, like, feet from the sidewalk. Jesus. Her body was missing a head, hands, and lower legs. 
Um, and then there was a statue of a saint buried above her. Aww. Bert Montoya, 51, was beside the house under a newly planted apricot tree. Large concentrations of lorazepam, which is used for insomnia. Is that true? Because that's what they said. Uh, not typically. The, uh, that's uh, anxiety. Okay. Uh, they found tons of that in the soil itself. Yowza. Right? There are also dozens of bottles of prescription drugs riddled around the house. The bodies were severely decomposed, so it was hard to find a cause of death. A few cases, the internal organs were melted altogether. Mm. So like a gross hot pocket. Mm. Mm. Everson Gilmore. Thanks for that, Jennifer. You're welcome. <laughs> Next time you have a... Um, Ugh, it literally makes me want to gag after you what said are those that fucking ass. Pizza rolls. <laughs> yes, I got it. Stop. <laughs> you just take a bite and... It, Jennifer, oh. <laughs> wait! <laughs> At this time, um, the box of books, Everson Gilmuth, was finally <laughs> identified through x-rays. He Through the, x-rays? Through x-rays. There was no cause of death that, that could be determined, but she was uh, definitely responsible. They also believe now that he she was responsible for Ruth Monroe's death. They're like, you know what? I think this bitch didn't commit suicide. <laughs> There was also uh, a list of each victim and how much they made a month. The first initial was how she labeled the victim in the fi- the list. And she was getting up to $5,000 a month. This is like $12,000 in our wow. money. And she was bankrolling. She had various checks, bank statements, social security cards from the victims, as well as various IDs with Dorothea's picture. <laughs> they verified that she cashed over 60 checks from her recipients that had died. And then a statewide manhunt, including the FBI, began to look for her. They discovered that she had booked a flight to L.A. but never boarded. So they ruled out L.A., which is fucking smart, son. Think about it. Because she was like, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to go. And then I'm going to drive there. And that's what that bitch did. She tricked the police. Oh, that was smart. I'm going to bank that one for later. Yeah. (laughs) When I murder people. Jean Silver contacts the police during this time, and they find her in that motel room. She was under the name Dorothea Montalvo, and her room was filled with expensive dresses, multiple $110 bottles of Giorgio perfume, and $3,000 of cash in a bank envelope. She was arrested and taken back to Sacramento. I was like, if you're running, why would you go buy expensive bottles of perfume? uh, Several of them, too. Why waste your money on that? bipolar i don't know she's looking for a high from that shopping experience yes she can't kill nobody right now so gotta find it where you can i don't know <laughs> shit i don't went and bought a cabin in the woods <laughs> right had a bunch of <laughs> bunch of boxes of coffee <laughs> right <laughs> not that hotel coffee uh-uh there are a ton of rumors about her including one where she made tamales at x xmas i always do that i'll write xmas and i'm like you know this is christmas but then i'll say xmas out loud uh, a reporter asked people who were at that Christmas party if they ate the tamales and if they tasted funny. She was named the Death House Landlady. And then uh, a judge transferred the trial to Monterey County because of the fame and everything. And trial began in October 1992. Prosecution called over 130 witnesses who all stated her shady history. She stole money, controlled food, drank heavily, and would hire convicts to dig holes in her yard. And they also would state how 
they were all forced to take drugs that they didn't want. So she kept them all jacked up. John O'Mara, the prosecutor's closing statement was, does anybody become responsible for their conduct in this world? These people were human beings. They had the right to live. They did not have a lot of possessions, no houses, no cars, only their social security checks in their lives. She took it all. Death is the only appropriate penalty. She was convicted of three of the murders, although the jury could not agree on the other six, which I'm like, how do you? Okay. <laughs> cool story, bro. <laughs> As the verdict was read, she remained emotionless and calm. After several days of deliberations, the jury was deadlocked seven to five, and Judge Michael Vegara declared a mistrial when the jury said further deliberations would not change their minds on this is the sentencing phase. So under law, Puente received life without the possibility of parole because they couldn't give her the death penalty. Before being led away, she told, she told her attorney, I didn't kill anyone. <laughs> and it's funny because that quote that I said at the beginning, I don't want to go back to jail. Like she had this little old lady way of talking and you could he's asking her questions and he's a very young guy looks like he's 30s i like saying he's young because he's in his 30s because we're in our 30s anyways <laughs> <laughs> and he's like Dorothea what you do with these people and she's like I don't know anything <laughs> <laughs> I don't know man <laughs> <laughs> she was incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility in Calchilla California and for the rest of her life, she maintained her innocence, insisting that all of her borders had call, died of natural causes. And as one does, you just bury them in the fucking yard. Duh. She did put a statue over that one lady, though. She did. She did have a ghostwriter publish a cookbook from prison called Cooking with a Serial Killer, Recipes from Dorothea Puente. It's a, a, available on Amazon, but I would not recommend supporting it. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. Definitely not. The former boarding house is still there, and there was even a documentary done on it called The House is Innocent. Our boys at Ghost Adventures, they did visit her house. Uh, and, of course, she's been on the, all the true crime shows, Crime Stories, Deadly Women, A Stranger in My Home, World's Most Evil Killers, The Worst Roommate Ever. That last one really hit home. And it's uncertain whether she committed these murders alone, but it's highly likely that she needed a second party to carry the body to the graves, but no accomplices have ever been identified. Oh, I guarantee she was making other people in the home do it and threatening them if they didn't help. Well, you know, like she had that one handyman that she hired that mm -hmm. they called Chief, and she's like, he's doing all this stuff, and then she's like, I need you to um, dig this hole real quick. And then she like, what What did she do? Like, hit him over the head, throw him in there, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, now that you've dug your grave, I can fill that shit in, but I don't want to dig it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. And again. It's what keeps me from killing anyone, having to dig a grave. <laughs> honestly, like, if if you're in a situation and someone's asking you to dig a hole for no particular reason or make a human-sized box for quote-unquote books, get suspicious. You know what? Say no. Exactly. Be pessimistic, okay? Glasses, half full. <laughs> half empty. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> And that's oh. the story of Dorothea Puente. Very good. Very good. I enjoyed it in a morbid way. I mean, it was, it's funny and it's not funny. Like, I feel terrible that all those poor people were preyed upon, you know. Oh, yeah. But, like, just the sheer ridiculousness of her and her old lady persona 
and all the stupid lies. Well, it's sad seeing uh, the justice system fail these people because she should have never been had them in the home. And if they'd have really been doing their checks the way they're supposed to, these people wouldn't have died that way. I mean, hell, like if they had found her after she absconded the first fucking time from probation. Yeah. Some of these people might have never, you know, like they just, I hate to say it, but sometimes people just assume little old ladies are nice. And I'm going to have to tell you, some of these ladies are fucking bitches. They's not all nice. They're not all nice. If they say, if they tell you, I get new pantyhose every day. Be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. So, you guys, uh, of course, we have merch now. You can find that on our link, uh, link tree in our social media profiles on Facebook and Instagram. You can drop in our DM with any stories. Right now, particularly, we're looking for cult survivor stories because we want to do a little bit, delve into the cult arena. Yep. Uh, not drink the Kool-Aid, but be a part of it. Yes. <laughs> And then uh, hit us up on our email, too close to yes. home at Yahoo. Watch our TikToks, follow, like them, love them, love them, live it, live, laugh, love. <laughs> <laughs> and until the next time, stay safe, keep your head on a swivel, and don't bring it so close to home that you get a room from Dorothy Puente. No. <laughs> if someone offers to help you with your social security so you can get all the business, say no, dog. I got it. I got it. <laughs> We out. Bye. <laughs> it's all about the bennies, baby. If you enjoyed this episode of Too Close to Home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at Too Close Home Pod on Facebook, at Too Close Podcast on Instagram, or if you have your own Too Close to Home experience, shoot us your story at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>